Okay, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 15. Uh, today I've got Brian St. Pierre um, on the uh, on the show today. Uh, love calling this a show. Hey, uh, Brian, how you doing? Good, Lauren. How are you? I'm happy I'm, to be here. Yeah, it's great. And uh, as we were just saying off air, we're all from different time zones and different parts of the world. And um, I think it's, it's, it's just amazing how we can use technology to be able to do this stuff and educate people with you know we're, we're all sort of in our respective parts of the world i'm here in london and you're and where are you right now i'm in in maine in the u.s yeah lovely maine i've i've uh, i've been there many a time as a child actually that's uh, fantastic yeah beautiful beautiful coastline you've got there exactly absolutely. so um for folks that don't know who brian st pierre is um just a little bit of um, background. He's got a, a master's degree in uh, human nutrition. He's also a registered dietitian. Um, he is a certified strength and conditioning coach, NSCA uh, uh, strength coach. He's also a, a precision nutrition certified coach um, and, um, and also works for precision nutrition as uh, not only one of their coaches, but also their sort of science education kind of guy. Isn't that right? That would that that uh, that's a good way of putting it for sure. Yeah. So, you know, for most people that follow or, or listen to this podcast, they'll uh, they'll know that for the most part, most of our guests on my show here are sort of rocket scientists within the nutrition and sports science, exercise physiology field. Um, but I, you know, I myself, I'm a practitioner like you, um, and I think it's very important that whilst we stay as evidence-based as we possibly can in the work that we do in you know whether it's performance or just weight management or whatever we we do we do as much as we can to stay um you know in the side of 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 evidence and uh using that to for best practice and to um you know for us to uh, uh do the best we can not only for our clients but also for ourselves and our career and our own sort of professional and career development. I think it's a very important thing to be evidence-based. Um, having said that, and as we've gathered on this podcast with many of the scientists and uh, experts that, that, that I've had here, you know, there's, there's a great deal of sort of misinterpretation and bias and pseudoscience that exists out there. But um, let, let's just delve firstly into one of the areas that I, I wanted to get into because the, the, the focus of this podcast really is about um, you know, turning the science into practice, bringing, bringing what we know from the lab into the real world, but also, you know, uh, taking stock of some of the things that we see in the real world, which we just don't see in the lab, or more importantly, haven't yet learnt in the lab, or haven't been able to identify and how it's important to, uh, to bear that in mind. And just as we were saying offline, you know, my favorite word is context. Apparently, that's yours too. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I want to get a bit into that. And uh, there's all kinds of things I know we could talk about as it relates to sort of nutrition coaching and, and so on. So let's let's start off. Brian, I mean, why, you know, why do you think it's important that, that us as practitioners, um, even if we're trying to be evidence-based, which we are, what, what, why is it important we need to bring this into the real world? Well, a lot of times it's important because the real world is where life happens, right? Life is messy, inherently uncontrolled and unpredictable versus a lab, it's the exact opposite, right? When you're doing a research study, you're trying to control as many variables as possible. You're trying to make it as predictable as possible, which is great because it helps us to delineate like what's exact, what's true from what's not true or what we can predict from what we can't predict. That's how science should be done. But when you apply it to the real world, the real world doesn't quite function that way, right? Like your kid gets sick or you get sick or work gets really crazy for a week and you sleep less and you, you know, your, your eating has to change because you're traveling more. Innumerable things come up that affect reality. Um, and so you have to learn to take best practices or, or evidence-based stuff and adjust it to life, adjust it to the realities and the circumstances that you are in to do the best you can with what you have, which isn't always following exactly best practices because maybe best practices aren't available to you at that moment in time yeah and it's it's difficult isn't it brian where you know you you, you know the likes of you and i who sort of sit in the middle of well we, we've done quite a bit of science uh but we're also 
very much practitioners and coaches and, and we've got to try and bridge the gap between what we learnt you know in college what we learnt in in la, you know in labs what we read in textbooks and I mean I for one am, I, I've sort of I, I was a strength and conditioning coach for about 10 years and then then got into nutrition and then did my master's degrees in nutrition and so on and one thing that struck me initially was how when I started to practice after I got my degrees you know what what I was seeing in my practice wasn't exactly what I was being taught or what I learned and 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 a big area of that which is a big feature of one of the things that I talk a lot about on this this podcast is scientists don't publish um, you know what's right for an individual what you know they're not publishing individual stuff they're publishing mm. means and and we there's huge amounts of, of ver, you know into individual variability amongst people and that's the sort of thing that we have to battle absolutely and I think that's that's such an important point you bring up because people forget that right they'll point out well this research showed that you know for example low carb was better when you actually look at the raw data, like you, maybe you can say on the average it was, but there are people who did extremely well on low carb, people who did extremely poorly on the low carb approach or, or any dietary approach. I just use that as an example. You can look at nearly any study like that. There's always somewhat of a bell curve, right? There are some people, you're right, it's not applying to each individual person. So you're looking at, it gives you the information for the average person, which generally doesn't exist but just for people in on average, on the whole. So if you're building out general guidelines, the research is great. To work with people individually and to assess their specific needs, the research is simply that. It's a guideline, it's a starting point, which you then adjust based on what that particular client needs. Because like you said before, it's the context that matters, the context of this particular person in these particular circumstances with these particular needs. So what you use and don't use will all depend on exactly what that client needs. Even if the general consensus doesn't agree with what you're doing, the general consensus is just just that. It's about it's a very general approach as a starting point. It's not an individualized uh, component. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased you you know you mentioned that as a starting point. I think that's a very important thing to, to consider i mean of course we need to use our science our tests our assessments you know whatever it is we've got to start from somewhere so we mm -hmm. want to use our training and i always teach my students it's very much a, a case of having a toolbox having a toolbox that's got lots of tools in it you need to know how to each how to use each tool but you, you also need to know how to apply each tool effectively and constructively for the benefit of the individual and their respective outcomes and when to apply it right? oh yeah absolutely yeah and that i mean yeah that's i mean that's a whole nother toolbox <laughs> that we need to to open but i think you know particularly in today's sort of political climate where we're talking about religious fundamentalism and all that stuff i think it's perfectly apt to say we also exist in an extreme of sort of nutritional fundamentalism mm. don't we and it, there's a hell of a lot of people out there that are very dogmatic about this stuff like you were saying you know oh we're in the low carb camp we're in the high carb camp it's very black and white to them you know and um it drives me nuts because they don't realize the importance of individualization and um and I mean, nuance. You, yeah absolutely so in your in your work um uh, uh, Precision Nutrition, I know you've worked with like tens of thousands, if not more than that now, of, of people. And, and one great thing about the work you do at, at PN is it, it is very evidence-based, but you keep things simple. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got to say that, it, it, you know, I mean, I did the PN certification course uh, when it started. And uh, I have to say it, it's been an excellent tool for me to use in my practice to help remind me of the importance of just changing habits and behaviors, mm. um, uh, you know, and, and, and not necessarily trying to get into the rocket science with clients. Um, it was a valuable learning tool, so much so actually that I get all of my, uh, I recommend to many of my students to do, to do that, that coaching course that you, that you offer there because it is so valuable. But I mean, what, how, how did that all come about anyway? The, uh, um, you, know, you know, the need to keep things simple. Uh, it came about um, through a number of different things, but mainly it came about through, you know, it's what we learned from coaching so many people. You know, with the, with the first iteration of, you know, what was then called lean eating, it was um, much more like sports science-based. You know, the habits were, it was still a habit-based program. Um, 
and, and some behavior change, but it was much more, you know, eat certain amounts of protein, take a BCA supplement, you know, time your carbohydrates. And what, what we just found over time was that works well for some people, but it really works well for the people who are, you know, the really the biggest go-getters who are going to succeed on nearly any program. And so for people who, you know, where nutrition isn't their passion, they're just using it to help them live better and feel better and, and lead a better life, um, it was too complicated. Right, it had too many too many rules, too many specifics, and so what we just found over time was by simplifying the process, you know, using things as guidelines or as measuring sticks, like like what we do with our portion guidelines today, where we use you know, your hands as a, a portion measurement tool, you know, that, that that'll just give you the macros that you need without you having to do any fancy math or calorie counting. So we've just found over time that by simplifying the process, uh, that increases consistency. And we know more than anything, whether you're doing low carb or high carb or anything in between, consistency to an approach is ultimately what leads to success, regardless of what that approach is. So we've just found that by decreasing complexity, you increase consistency, and that leads to better results across the board. Yeah, you know, one of the things, well, I certainly was guilty of this when I just came out of college. Um you know, and learned all the rocket science behind nutrition. Mm. One of the first mistakes I made was to overcomplicate things for my clients and patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it didn't take me too long to work out that, hey, hang on, I, I know I need to know this stuff, but I'm not sure I need to be talking about macros and uh, 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 calories specifically, or, uh, you know, uh, ATP or, right. you know, uh, mitochondrial bonogenesis, or <laughs> the, the, the things that we're so excited, and you want to you wanna impress upon your clients the importance of all this knowledge, but keeping things simple is is probably the most important thing we need to do, right? Because everyone everyone's life is complicated, mm-hmm. right? That there's stuff going on, they've got stress, they, they might have personal issues at home or or not, there's just, you know, busy family, they, they've got work, they've got projects, they've got all kinds of stuff going on. The last thing they need to do is go see a, a nutritionist who's then going to make their life even more complicated because that's just going to set them to fail, right? Right, uh, absolutely. And I, and I think sometimes people get, you know, they'll hear this keep it simple mindset or this approach and they think, oh, this is just, you know, that's, that's too easy or what. And we're not, I'm not saying it's easy. Keeping it simple doesn't necessarily mean making it you're hoping to make it easier, but behavior change is still always somewhat difficult. Um, but keeping it simple allows behavior change to happen more seamlessly. When you add arbitrary rules, yeah, you talk about things they just don't need to know about. They don't need to know about ATP resynthesis and how creatine exactly works. I mean, some clients will really want to know that stuff. Most clients don't want to know, and the vast majority don't need to know. Right? What they need to know is, what do I have to do, and how can you help me do it? Um, so that's really what you need to get across. And so you don't need to teach... Uh, carbohydrate timing to most clients. The way I really give it as an analogy is, and we're both strength coaches, when you work with a a new client, someone who's never exercised before, you don't throw them into a west side training template, right? They're not doing accommodating resistance and speed pulls and, you know, work uh, 1RMs at 90% of their 1RM, like singles at 90% of their 1RM. They're not doing anything like that. You're starting out with basics, right? Body weight stuff or really, really simple compound movements just to get basic movement patterns down. Nutrition should be the same way. You don't take advanced approaches and use them with someone who's 40% body fat. They're just not necessary for that person at that time. You know, to get from to get a man from 30% body fat to 15% body fat only requires mastery of a few key components. Now, to get to from 15% to 10 or to 8, okay, now you're talking about mastery of other key components that's a different client you can't apply the same principles that you would to that 15 to 8 that you would to the 30 to 15 right they're two different approaches because there's two different needs there yeah and i think it's important that everyone understands there is no one size fits all it's all about individualization uh and obviously uh my favorite word again context Mm -hmm. um but that really is true and that's why you need those tools in that toolbox so that you can you know, have have those those right tools for specific situations to help your client best achieve their goals. Not not enforce some regime that you give to everyone because right. whilst it might have worked for you, it isn't going to work necessarily for them. So when, when let's just let's just 
let's make this a bit more applied. So, because uh, there's plenty of rocket scientists coming up on the next few podcasts. So, let, let's just get into a few things. So, um, I, I heard Dr. Berardi, uh, who, um, uh, who who I've definitely followed a lot because I, I love his pragmatic approach to all of this, which which I know you have too. You know what? What are the? I mean, what would you see as sort of the the main things you need to get into first when you're actually assessing someone's sort of nutritional scenario? Uh, what What's the fundamental, most important areas you think that need some focus? Well, I mean, first you need to assess like what they're currently eating. You need to kind of know where they're starting from, and you also need to get an understanding of what their goals are, where do they want to go, what do they want to do, you know, why do they want to get there. Need to understand what their what their life circumstances are like. You know, how many are they working ten hours a week? Are they a stay-at-home mom? Are they an executive working eighty hours a week? That's all going to impact the type of suggestions that you can make. So you need to know, you know, that kind of stuff. You need to know what kind of support they have at home. Are they a bachelor who can do whatever they want, eat whatever they want? Do they have a family and kids? And you know, meals are going to be somewhat dictated by everyone's taste preferences and, and food preferences. So you have to work around that context. So there's a lot of things in that regard you need to know um, that'll all help you from the get-go to know what direction to take a client. And secondarily, you can also discuss things that have worked for them in the past. You know, maybe they've done low carb in the past and it worked really well for them, but for whatever reason they got away from it. Or maybe they did, you know, the zone diet and it worked really well for them. To find out those kind of things can be helpful. Um, because it can help give you an idea of what might work for them now. It may not, but it can give you an idea of something that's worked in the past might work in the future or in the present. So those are all things I would be looking to assess to help to determine what direction we want to go. And you also want to know, you know, health history, do they have a type of medical um, circumstances that could impact your ability to work with them? Are they hypothyroid? Are they, do they have a, a hormonal issue like testosterone or estrogen or anything of that nature. Now, you're not always going to know all of this stuff. Not every client's going to come to you with all this information at their fingertips, and that's okay. You can still start without it, but it can be beneficial to know, especially if there are certain things going on. Yeah, I, I, there's some good points you made there. I, I, I know that one area that doesn't cross people's mind is, you know, ha, what is that person's circumstances? Uh, I know I've certainly had quite a few students who are sort of shocked at that that thought that well hang on uh can that client even afford to do what you're going to ask him to do mm-hmm. um that's something that people don't tend to think about but also i've certainly seen a lot of nutrition plans on my desk from other people and uh a common one i find is you know you, you the client is sort of an average person who's uh, really overweight and they they don't they're not trying to get down to a six-pack they just want to get healthy and lose the right amount of weight and you know go increase their activity and just do all that basic stuff mm-hmm. but the plan that they were given involved um you know prepping up food uh into plastic containers uh you know like a contest prep sort of right. Right. and uh and actually the stress of doing that was so bad that um it it, it resulted on an on almost regular basis where this client would um have to uh uh, fall off the wagon and and eat and drink really, quote unquote, bad stuff, uh, mm-hmm. just to just to compensate for the fact that they couldn't follow this crazy diet and regime. And it was, it was a perfectly decent set of recommendations, but it was not aimed at the right person. Right. Um, so I get that that again fits into the whole context scenario. You know, in what context are you making these recommendations? Um, so I mean, what you know, what what are the, what, I mean, what are the biggest problem areas? that you would see as limiting factors uh, that get in the way of people achieving their goals? Well, I mean, there could be a couple of things. Um, You know, you can get into behavior stuff, right? Some people have as a limiting factor, you know, they'll come to you because they think they should change or their spouse or something, or their doctor thinks they should change. They don't have a desire. So what's one of the things we teach is, the motivational interviewing technique of, of seeing, assessing people's stage of readiness to change. Because sometimes you might have someone who's a prime candidate to, to work with and you've got all kinds of great ideas for them, but if they don't have that desire to change, that's going to be a very, very difficult client to work with. 
Um, that's a, an important discussion to have with clients who you feel like that might be the case. Other than that, when you get into an actual like physiology stuff, um, some of the most important limiting factors are a lot of people have unknown nutrient deficiencies. You know, especially if they're living on a diet that's you know rich in processed, prepackaged, in convenience foods. Um, those are often you know nutrient poor. They just have some some synthetic vitamins added back to them, for instance, but it doesn't necessarily cover all of your needs. And so nutrient deficiencies are a big, big one. Over-reliance on things like sugar-sweetened beverages, you know, just changing that for a lot of people is a huge victory. If you can get clients to go from drinking, let's say, two or three sodas or other sugar-sweetened beverages a day to maybe just one or two a week or something like that, you know, to wean them off, um, oftentimes you will see big progress just from that one change. That's usually a big one. And even going back to nutrient deficiencies as a, as a third one, uh, just having a diet that's rich in, in processed foods or, or low in protein, because oftentimes processed foods are low in protein. So if you can decrease the amount of pro processed foods they eat and increase protein, those three things right there can go such a long way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's some other thoughts that, I, you know, I was thinking as you were saying that in terms of, of this whole business of sort of nutrient deficiency or insufficiencies. And I, I think that's something that people do tend to forget that the overall quality of a person's diet over and above just the basic macros, because of course, a lot of particularly fitness related sort of health professionals, uh, particularly those that are looking at sort of gaining muscle mass or or cutting down for a rip physique they, they're a little bit over focused on things like uh, how much protein there is how much mm -hmm. carbohydrates uh, energy balance without necessarily thinking about the quality um, of the food that we eat. because I, you know and I've said this before we don't eat calories we don't eat nutrients we eat food um, we eat beyond that we eat, we eat meals right yeah. Like, especially fitness professionals, oftentimes we eat food. Like, we kind of piece meals together based on food. That's kind of how we think. But a lot of clients don't really think that way, right? They think in terms of meals. So, that's an important component to keep in mind. You know, like we were talking how a lot of fitness professionals will eat based on their macronutrients. And that's because that works for their goals, because their goals are to be 8% body fat. And so, to best achieve that goal, it was maybe eating that way. For most of your clients, that's not going to be their goal. And they don't think about food the same way. And that's an important piece of context to keep in mind. Yes, yes. And I I mean, I always, I mean, I, I do wrestle with this whole business of uh, sort of calories in, calories out. In fact, I, I just did a lecture, which I videoed on the importance of resting energy expenditure or resting mm -hmm. metabolic rate, as we tend to look at it more in, in Europe. And... As we just inferred earlier, you know, the problem is, is when we when, when we start working out things like how many calories should I be eating, where we're trying to make some assumptions about the accuracy of our, our, you know, our estimations here. Like we're assuming we know how many calories we've burnt. We we're assuming we know how many calories we've eaten and we put all that into a into an app or a piece of software and we start working out what we've done. But of course, how you know. The, 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 those tables that we start jotting in our height and weight and physical activity level into to determine how many calories a day we're doing is all based off huge amounts of, of data that the averages and means you know are produced from and of course your you know you plug in your your info and it sort of comes up with how you know what your resting metabolic rate is likely to be in terms of calories but of course in terms of sort of the you know the variability between people there can be a, at least five or six hundred calories um variation based off even just the research in my own lab here mm -hmm. in london we've we found whatever the estimate is it can be um you know it can uh, it can be uh, 500 calories either side off which is a huge amount so huge. why so why so you know why put all that faith um, into calorie counting when, for example, like you guys, you know, you start off with establishing, say, uh, portion sizes on the basis of, um, you know, uh, hands or, or parts mm -hmm. of your hands. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? I mean, that's a multi-part question, but yeah. I love it from, from a lot of different angles. 
I mean, because if you take the biggest, the biggest picture, like you zoom out all the way, and it is about calories in versus calories out, right? We know from a physiology standpoint, from the laws of thermodynamics, how that works. The bodies don't, our bodies don't defy that. However, people kind of get lost or confused in how, what that actually means. It doesn't mean that you need to, you're only going to expend X amount of calories, you need to figure that out and then eat X amount of calories. Because like you're pointing out, it's not, it doesn't, not that simple. It doesn't work out quite that way. We're trying to calculate what your calorie needs are. And on the flip side, you're trying to calculate how many calories you're actually consuming. There's just as great of a variability as what you're talking about with measuring metabolic rate. Right, food calorie components are averages. Um, you know where where a food is grown, what season it was grown in, and what the climate was like during that growing season can all impact its, its calorie content. And then processed foods, right? Same idea. There's all kinds of things that can impact the accuracy of the calorie estimations because they're done based on bomb calorimeters versus within human consumption. Um, there are differences, and so and as much as like plus or minus twenty five percent. In either direction. So same kind of idea. If, if your estimation of your calorie needs are 500 calories off and the estimation of how many calories you're eating are 500 calories off, well that's a huge window of opportunity for mistakes. All right. So what we teach instead is to use more of a, and there's research to back this up, um, a mindful eating approach to not necessarily be a slave to numbers and calories. Because while, yes, calories in versus calories out is ultimately what determines weight gain or weight loss, you don't need to calculate your calories expended and your calories consumed to utilize that equation. So we teach a different way of utilizing calories in, calories out. So mainly what we're really looking at is controlling portions and eating mindfully. So what that really means is we teach people to eat slowly. It's one of the very first habits we teach to eat slowly, give your body time to actually acknowledge how much food is coming in, give you the ability to assess when you're satisfied. You know, it takes about 20 minutes, depends on the person, about 20 minutes for your brain to get the signal that you've consumed enough food. Because there are many things signaling to your brain, your vagus nerve in your stomach, leptin response, insulin response, GLP-1, CCK. There are many, many different avenues or different markers that signal to your hypothalamus, okay, we're well fed let's cease the meal. And there are things that you consume, like processed foods that are hyper palatable, that kind of override those signals. So there are many things at play. But if we teach people to eat slowly, eat mostly whole foods, that in and of itself, just becoming more mindful of your, of your intake, will decrease intake. Then we teach people to eat only until they're satisfied, and to pay attention to their internal uh, satiation and hunger cues. Oh, I've eaten enough, I'm good. Even if there's still food left on your plate, it's okay. Like, we're good. And then we also teach portion control so we can get you know an appropriate amount of macronutrients and, and total calories without having to count them. So we teach using your hands as a, as a guideline. So there's a couple reasons for this. One, your hands are portable, right? They go with you wherever you go. You don't have to bring a food scale anywhere. You don't have to be you know measuring exactly how many grams of, of protein or chicken you're consuming. Your hands give you an eyeball, a, a pretty accurate eyeball and they go with you wherever you go. So you're at a friend's house, you're at a social event, you're at home, you're at wherever, they're there. And two, they're scaled to the individual. You know, generally the bigger frame you have, you know, the higher your nutrient needs are going to be. And the bigger your hands are, so the more food you get to eat. The smaller you are, the smaller you know, needs you tend to have, the smaller your hands are, and the smaller your portions tend to be. So it works out pretty well in that regard. So what we teach is, um, for protein, palms. So for men, about two palms of protein at each meal, and for women, about one palm. And these are just starting points. Um, these are assuming you eat about four times a day. So for vegetables, we teach for men two-fifths of vegetables, and women one-fifth of vegetables. For men, for carbohydrates, you know, fruit and or starch, two cupped handfuls. For women, about one cupped handful. And for fats, men, it's about two entire thumbs, and women, about one entire thumb. And these are just a starting point, a guideline, which you then adjust based on needs, goals, and ultimately results, right? If someone's not progressing, you adjust up or down depending on what they need. Um, so it just it allows us to control total intake and give us a good blend of macronutrients to help meet protein needs, carb needs, fat needs, produce needs, um, without having to resort to calorie counting or fancy math or anything of that sort, which most clients, except for your most hardcore, aren't going to want to do anyway. Yeah. 
No, I, I, you know, I love that method and use it in my own clinic uh, here at Guru Performance. Um, uh, you know, and of course we've got the, 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 the elite athletes where we, you know, we're coming up to uh, a very specific event like the Olympics or something, and we need mm-hmm. to be very precise. And maybe at that time they, that there's there's a value in getting uh, more precise. Um, sure. You know, where we use tests and assessments and so on. But you know, and and of course for preparing for body comp- uh, bodybuilding competitions and so on. Yes, of course. There's all these scenarios where we can go to the higher level, but I think it's fair that most people don't need that, like you're pointing out. And of course, as, as I said earlier, we, 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 as practitioners, we need to make people's lives easier for the most part. And um, teaching them a sort of a sustainable, practical, portable system, like you said, without developing what... In, I guess some people would look at it almost as as like an eating disorder when all you're doing is counting calories all day, weighing foods, taking pictures of food labels. I mean, it's a it's an it's a, unhealthy relationship with food, and we're just making it worse if we're encouraging people to do that. Um, sure. You know, and I disordered know that, eating. No yeah, it, it is, and I know there's two sides to every that, and I know some of our listeners may have their own views, and that's cool. We're just presenting the tools in our own toolbox here, and this is what we find works. Um, so let's let's sort of move on from that. And there's a, a sort of a, a, a couple of areas I, I thought might be a bit fun to get into. Um, I mean, what an area that I'm always being hit by. And in fact, um, it could well be the very I think the next podcast, I've got a, an expert researcher and scientist where we're going to get into carbohydrates in a huge way. Um, but, you know, you, unless you're living under a rock, there's no way you can avoid this this big controversy, this big movement behind uh, low carb, and we've already inferred earlier. Of course, it should be about context and individual variability. But I mean, what what are your thoughts in your own sort of experience um, with all the many thousands of people you guys work with? You know, because I know that that you sort of brought carbs back onto the plate, so to speak, uh, to a certain mm-hmm. extent, and. Uh, I mean, what, you know, what, what, I mean, let's talk about the positives of carbs, um, on this. Sure. I mean, there are, there are many positives to carbs. I mean, the, the low carb movement, um, I think like mainstream wise with the Atkins approach has waned a little bit, but from a nutritionist perspective, I think you're right. I think there still is a big push, but there's a, there's a time and a place for, for every approach and a low carb is not necessarily the time but the approach for every client. Uh, I would actually say far from. Now, lowering carbs can be beneficial, but carbs have a lot of benefits for an exercising individual. So if you're someone who, who exercises, you know, it's important to get an appropriate amount of carbohydrates to meet your, your needs to help keep, if you're a man, help keep testosterone up, help keep cortisol down. If you're a woman, help keep your HPA axis functioning appropriately, help to keep your period. Uh, we've seen women who have lost their period because they've gone too low carb for too long combined with a, an intense exercise program. And there are all kinds of things uh, of that nature. You know, thyroid function as well. You know, appropriate amount of carbohydrates helps keep your thyroid functioning at its highest because you need glucose to convert T4 to T3. Um, you know, other things like that. So carbohydrates are incredibly beneficial. It's going to help with recovery and adaptation to, to training. It's going to help with performance in training, you know, in terms of the how well how high of an output you can have when you're actually exercising. So carbohydrates have a tremendous amount of benefits, and to me, have kind of gotten um, a poor rap. You know, they've kind of gotten labeled as inherently fattening, and that's just not the case. There are certainly some foods that I think are, are superior to others when it comes to carbohydrate sources, without question. You know, like I was talking about earlier, when you compare a sugar sweetened beverage like a soda versus a sweet potato, they're both carb sources, but they're far from the same thing. You know, in terms of their impact on satiety levels, on performance levels, on health markers. I mean, they're not they're not equivalent. So it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, uh, you see, it's one of those things, isn't it, where if, if you're not going to consider the individual needs, likes, dislikes, preferences, goals of a person, and you're just going to go, right, uh, let's get this guy keto adapted. Um, what you're not, you know, now... I've definitely got clients that come and see me and they want to go keto adapted and I'm going to help them get there. And I can assure mm-hmm. you, these guys have done very well for the most part. Um, 
like some areas of research that I'm into is um, things like metabolic efficiency and metabolic adaptation and so on and observing fat oxidation rates in the lab and boy can these guys oxidize some serious amounts of fats in the lab so I, I, I know it works they're certainly not the fastest um, but the biggest thing though is is that they can sustain the lifestyle that's required now I've also got a bunch of people who've who've sort of come to me via, if you like, uh, low carb or, or sort of keto diets anonymous, if, if, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, these mm -hmm. are people who, who, who had heard that that's the only way that they could lose weight. They tried it and boy, did they get broken in the process. You know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it was stressful. Um, it just, you know, it, 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 it caused all kinds of symptoms and problems that just didn't work for them. And of course, people aren't considering that that is the other side of the coin. The biggest problem with that is it is pretty hard to do. But just, you know, for you as a, for, for those of you that are listening and you're into keto, that's great. And you know what? It does work. And there are certain contexts where it's extremely effective. In fact, mm -hmm. I heard a lecture um, out at one of the ISSN uh, conferences I went to recently where uh, they're showing all this research. It can um, help with um, uh, uh, certain factors that relate to your ability to increase oxygen saturation. Uh, which may have benefits to deep sea divers, special forces uh, scenarios where you're being deployed, um, you know, uh, into water and have to travel underwater for a bit before you go and do your super ninja stuff. Um, you know, that's all great. Um, but for many people, they isn't, they're not looking at being special forces or <laughs> deep sea divers or, uh, or, or so on. There's, there's, there's different scenarios for different people and, and we've just got to become more pragmatic. And since... We're not arguing a case for or against carbs because you know what? They both work. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is they both work. Now, there's a lot more research that shows carbs works and not so much research that fat doesn't do, you know, does or doesn't do certain things. So, of course, I, I get it that sometimes people throw the evidence out there for carbs and not for fat because there is more evidence for carbs right. and because there isn't as much out there for, for fat. Um, it's a bit unfair to say that, 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 that going low carb isn't a good idea. I get that. But us as practitioners, which is the focus of this podcast or uh, for, for high, you know, sort of highly educated individuals who are going to take their nutrition and healthcare into their own hands, you've got to think about your specific goals and needs. Um, and um, this past weekend, we had a, a lecture weekend for us on the ISSN diploma program that I teach. And... Um, Dr. Kevin Currell, who's the uh, head of performance nutrition for the England Institute of Sport, which is our mm -hmm. sort of national, you know, sort of science group that looks after professional athletes and Olympians and so on. He, he's very much a pragmatist um, in the ways that we're discussing here. And he said, uh, you know, probably the most important focus for us as a performance nutritionist is to unleash the power of food. And I love that because mm. it, we don't need to to be rocket scientists and uh, you know we, another thing is is you know we don't we don't need to be a scientist we, we need to be more of an engineer because we, we need to not be focusing on very narrow small areas we need to look at the bigger picture like you said so I mean let's let's because we're racing through time here but let's talk about the importance of the bigger picture and not focusing on on sort of small areas i mean what i mean what thoughts come to mind when we think about the bigger picture i mean i have a lot of thoughts you know that come to mind when it comes to the big pictures and even in some ways that can relate back to what we were just talking about when it comes to carbs and to to recognize that for example like clients tend to fit like on a bell curve right there are some people you're absolutely right there are some people a small segment of the population but people who do best on a ketogenic diet on the other hand there are people Again, I would argue a smaller percentage who do best on a very high carb, like an Ornish approach, right? Where 10% carb, 10% of their calories from fats and tons amount, tons from carbs. And to recognize that both approaches can be valid depending on the person. And so when it comes to the big picture, I think the most important thing for people to keep in mind is to be results oriented. Yeah. So often we get locked into, well, I'm a low carb guy, I'm a moderate guy, I'm a this or that. And we focus on what should work or what we think should work for the client rather than looking at, well, what is or is not working. Like, okay, you know what? We've been trying this. It's not really getting us where we want to go. 
let's try to go this way. And even if it's outside your normal or it's outside of what's worked for you and for other clients of yours, recognize, like, like you said, like there's different tools for different clients. And so you have to be more of like a nutritional agnostic and understand that big picture of where to use different tools for different people and to understand like even if your standard approach is X, if X isn't working for the client, you don't just keep hammering X, right? You don't just keep going, well, we're going to do it harder. We're going to paleo harder. We're going to low carb harder. But if they're failing on low carb or they're failing on paleo, maybe low carb or paleo isn't the, isn't the, uh, the right approach or you know, even the opposite. If they're failing on high carb, maybe that's not the approach. It doesn't mean you just high carb harder. Right, you adjust. You be results oriented, and you see that big picture. And understand, while details are important, yes, they're eating enough protein, they're eating enough, you know, fruits and vegetables, they're getting enough fiber. To see that big picture and take that step back and see everything in its entirety, um, to see their lifestyle, to see what what is and is not working for them, and things of that nature. That's what kind of pops for me off the top of my head. Yeah, no, that's great, and I I had the same thoughts, but I I absolutely love the idea of a nutritional agnostic. Uh, I, I can see all kinds of uh, ways of using that, uh, like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, sort of nutritional fundamentalism. No, right. I'm, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm a, I'm a low-carb atheist. Or a, <laughs> it's, uh, it's great, but it's true. Joking apart, it's true. And uh, I mean, so let, let's just, uh, uh, whilst we've talked about some of those things, I mean, what, you know, what role do you see for supplements in all of this? Um, I think supplements can definitely play a role, and especially in the case of, I could talk about like nutrient deficiencies earlier, they can be beneficial in helping to ensure you don't have nutrient deficiencies. You know, for for example, you know, we know a lot of people who who come into like our co- coaching programs, for example, who are consuming like little to no omega-3s. You know, like it just doesn't exist in their diet. They don't take a fish oil supplement. They don't eat fish. They don't eat, you know, walnuts or flax seeds or other good sources of, of omega-3s. And so, Jess, we don't have fish oil as an initial habit per se, but we do recommend fish oil in the program um, to help get people to eliminate that type of deficiency, you know, because we know omega-3s can help with so many things. So fish oil can be a really good one, and it can just help kickstart some stuff. I don't think of supplements as a necessity um, in, in every case. You know, if someone's consuming fatty fish two three times a week, they probably don't need to take fish oil. They're getting adequate omega-3s, especially if they consume other omega-3 rich foods. Um, you know, I'm probably not going to look at that in that case. But for example, like, you know, we have protein as a habit. You know, for men and women to get their one palm or, or, or two palms of protein at each meal, that can sometimes be hard when you're just using whole foods. So protein powder can be beneficial there to help people meet their protein needs. And so we encourage people to make what we call super shakes. Right? They use those same hand-sized portion guidelines but they use, they put protein powder, you know, a scoop or two of protein powder. They put some spinach in for their veggies or something like that. So, you know, a handful or two of, of fresh or frozen fruit. You toss in some, some nuts or nut butter or seeds for some healthy fats. And now you're getting in a, a fantastic meal. It's going to help to eliminate nutrient deficiencies as well. Um, it does have a supplement with protein powder, but it's, it's going to be vastly superior to most convenient you know, meals that people can make that are, that are ready in, in a matter of minutes. So things of that nature. Then you can get into, you know, multivitamin, multimineral. And I, I, I do see a place, kind of some people are for it, some are against it. Um, I tend to be for it, as long as it's a simple one, you know, that meets like 100% of your needs. I'm not an advocate of a product that contains, you know, extreme amounts of, of nutrients. I prefer to use a multivitamin, multimineral just as a, as like a fail-safe, just to help to prevent deficiencies. It's not meant to treat, if you have a clinical deficiency of a nutrient, a multivitamin isn't the way to go, right? You should work that out with your primary care and, and have an isolated supplement, like if you have a folate deficiency or a vitamin D deficiency, you wouldn't expect to treat that with a multivitamin. But to help prevent deficiencies, you know, a multivitamin is a great option, fish oil, protein powder, uh, that would be a, a starting point for a lot of people for sure. Yeah, I, I guess I take the same sort of perspective. I, th- I like to make it clear to people that supplements, like the name suggests, is a supplement, it's not an instead of. Uh, too many people get that perspective the wrong way around. I mean, it's, it's quite obvious sometimes when you look at people's sort of diets and food diaries and lifestyle assessments, you know, they're packing in the protein powders, they're packing in the, the pills and potions, and, you know, they're having twice as many fish oils because they read somewhere that it can help you 
burn fat and right. you know the the perspective can be wrong but yes i think absolutely there's a place um there's a place for them and again it's a context issue there's there you know there, there's a lot there we've done some other podcasts on supplements and uh, uh and so on i'm very much a food first person but um sure. i do i do think there is a value and i do personally take some basic supplements but i have experienced myself and certainly had a lot of clients who've had too much focus on on the supplements um which is sort of detracted their focus away from what they're actually eating and that right that can be an issue um, absolutely and that's part of the big picture we talked about right like recognizing absolutely what's most important to help you reach your goals like supplements can sometimes just be easier right it's easier to just take a supplement than to change your behavior so oftentimes people will go you know, the path of least resistance yeah. and so you know you'll see clients who do that and they have this pantry full of supplements and yet their food choices aren't uh, right where you think they should be so and oftentimes that's like a, almost like a defense mechanism right it's easier to, to read more about that and to try more supplements and to take more supplements than it is to change deep-seated behaviors yeah no so what I mean let's because we're coming to the end of this uh, this podcast here I mean I mentioned earlier about evidence-based I mean what what are the sort of things that that you recommend for people to stay in touch and I'm, I'm thinking more along the lines of um, nutritionists, uh, sports scientists, strength and conditioning coaches, uh, and so on. What, what, what's, what sort of resources would you recommend for people to stay abreast of, of the evidence? Um, you know. Sure, sure. Well, first and foremost, would obviously be precisionnutrition.com. Right. We we write articles and blog posts and, and give seminars and we post them on our site. Um, we tend to be very evidence based. Evidence based with a element of how to apply this to the real world. And so I think that's an important component and I think we do that very well. So obviously us, um, secondarily there are a lot of great people out there like Alan Aragon is a, I'm a big fan of his work. He's yeah. very much practical. He's, uh, he's done a couple of podcasts with me. So yeah, far. Alan he's, is, uh, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. I've never met him in person, but we've conversed, you know, online a bunch of times and via email. He's, he's a nice guy. I've always gotten along well with him and I think he does a great, great job. His research review is fantastic. It's like, what, 10 bucks a month? Yeah. And you have access to, he has a, a review every month of, of topics and research. And you, you have access, once you sign up, you have access to all of the backlogged articles. So there's six years of, of monthly research reviews. So you're talking, what, like 72? Maybe not quite that many because it's not the end of 2014 yet, but 60 plus you know, research reviews, which you can go and check out. And he does yeah. a fantastic job. He has a great eye for the big picture. Um, he does a really nice job. Dr. Stephen Guyanet, his website called wholehealthsource.org. I'm a big fan of his work. He's an obesity researcher at the University of Washington. And he just does a great job of relaying complex concepts uh, and, and research to a very understandable medium for most people to grasp. So a lot of his work is about like the food reward theory, so like hyperpalatable, hyper-rewarding food, and how it affects you know, your brain mechanisms and, and inflammatory status of your hypothalamus, and it drives Great. food consumption and you know, a whole, the whole yeah. nine yards. Actually, that but sounds like a, another guest for this podcast. That's and he would be. Point I, I've never met him. I've never even spoken with him, but I've read his work for years. Yeah. Um, and his and it's fantastic. He, he's an expert on like leptin, and and he he really researches like the hypothalamic response of, of food and neurobiology of obesity. So he would be a great, great person to have on. His work is fantastic. And then for in terms of like strength coaches, I mean, I got my start in this industry working fair at Cressy. Uh, I was the first, his first intern, first employee. And it's been awesome for me to watch, you know, Cressy sports performance grow. And I think Eric is one of the best in the business. You know, so Eric Cressy is, as a strength coach, his work is, is top notch. Uh, Mike Robertson, another example excellent, excellent strength coach at, at iFast. Uh, and these are all going to be American ones, but that's just where I'm from. It's what I know. And then Mike Boyle. So between between those three, I think you're covering most of your bases in terms of strength coaches who are going to teach you what you need to know to be an excellent strength coach. Yeah, no, no, thanks, Brian. I, I, I would agree with all of those. Those are all people I follow. Uh, I mean, this in this podcast, I'm not particularly, uh, in fact, I'm not commercial at all, but, uh, you know, what we're talking about here, I think is important for our listeners and uh, um, all of your resources there would be ones that I would certainly um, agree with. Um, well, I mean, I, I'd love to thank you for 
coming on this uh, podcast. I, I think we'll have to get you back. And there's so many other areas we could get into. Mm. Um, but I appreciate your time. It's been it's been wonderful. I'm I'm definitely um, grateful to 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 share some thoughts and ideas with you. And it's good as sort of one practitioner to another to to be on the same page, which is wonderful. It's a lonely business we're in uh there's a lot of quacks and nutters out there so it's quite nice to uh to have that um i uh, certainly recommend precision nutrition um as a sort of a, a sort of a certification um for nutritionists and anyone relating to people for for weight loss and performance uh i've done it myself uh i, I recommend it to all my students who are looking to come onto my graduate programs i think it's an excellent uh, precursor, uh, so do do check that out. Um, obviously, I've I've mentioned before the ISSN diploma. For those of you that don't know, I'm the course director of the uh, ISSN diploma program, uh, which uh, we've actually just made the precision nutrition certification as one of the uh, possible credentials you can use as as sort of partial way of getting eligible for that postgraduate program. So. Uh, that's a great thing about the PN is that it's a great segue into into our program. So that, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, and um, for more information about what we're doing at Guru Performance, um, obviously go to guruperformance.com. You can learn more about our podcast there, uh, past podcasts, upcoming podcasts. And also uh, we conduct research at Guru Performance and uh, all kinds of other cool stuff. So do check us out at guruperformance.com. Uh, to learn more about the ISSN diploma, uh, you can either get to that via guruperformance.com or issndiploma.com. Anyway, thanks, Brian. Um, it's been awesome. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been it's been a blast. Yeah, thanks. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, coming up next, uh, I've got a couple of uh, uh, people, um, Dr. Craig Sale on all things uh, rocket science to do with uh, creatine monohydrate. I've got Dr. Uh, James Morton on all things uh, relating to the uh, nutrition and exercise biochemistry side of uh, carbohydrates. Um, and uh, Professor Kevin Tipton will be back on shortly where we're going to get into protein, protein studies and various other things. So a bit more rocket science coming away, folks. Uh, anyway, I'm Laurent Bannock. Uh, this is Guru Performances We Do Science podcast.